welcome to the Hidden Lessons Podcast with me, Maureen Vague. Education is something we all have some experience of, but everyone's experience of education is different. Some people can't wait to finish school and never look back. Others, like me, decide to become teachers themselves. But either way, whether we realize it at the time or not, the days we spend in school have an impact on the rest of our lives. This week, I am extremely excited to be speaking to Greg Rutherford. Greg is not only an Olympic champion, but he also happens to be the celebrity master chef champion and one of my closest friends. So Greg, these are quite some achievements. Which one of these three are you most proud of? Because <laughs> you're on the line, I feel like I should probably say being one of your closest friends is clearly my greatest achievement. So uh, thank that you is the much. correct answer. That is the correct answer. Well done. First question I've got about you when you were in school is were you popular? I can imagine you as being like a super popular. No, no. So I, I had to develop that. So I guess popularity only came in secondary, a bit, I guess a little bit middle school. So in the county that we were in, there was sort of your, your primary, middle and second. At my first school, I was, I was quite heavily bullied. So there was definitely no popularity there. And then when I went through to middle school, I sort of had a chance to, because I moved to a different part of, of I'm in Milton Keith, where I grew up and I um, went to a different school. And at that point I managed to forge some new friends, which ended up being, they weren't the real popular crew, but they were sort of in the middle. And then by the time we got into secondary school, things started to change a bit, but sport became more important to people. So it meant that I was able to be a bit more popular, but I was still, I was most certainly never the most popular person in my year. I cannot believe you said you used to be bullied. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's one, there's one thing about me that most people will notice and, and remember is the fact that I have ginger hair and back in the guess when I first went to primary school, there'd be early 90s, so 91. I think it was still something that was well, a great pleasure for people to, to give a lot of stick. And I wasn't particularly wealthy growing up at all. I was from a very working class family. So all of these things were, were very easy targets for, for, for other people and generally the popular people, if you like, even at primary school. And I got, I got quite heavily picked on for, for periods of time. Even quite enough, even a teacher took great distaste to, to me. And that was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving the school that I was first at to then move to another school. So it was, yeah, it was relatively difficult actually my first sort of three, four years, if you like it. At primary school, I'm I'm from Bletchley, Milton Keynes, which is isn't like the, the well back then it wasn't like the the nice part at all, and you just had a a, a real sort of mishmash of people, um, a real proper melting pot of the school. But equally, I didn't really fit anywhere at that point. Um, as before, sport was was important to me. It was you know, I I just think I became a target, and, and for whatever reason that was, I, I yeah I, I I suffered at the hands of, of bullies if you like for the for the first few years of my schooling life. That's awful. You've never told me that. It, it's one of those things that yeah, and it's probably because as well, and we'll probably get into it as I, I sort of had these peaks and drops within my my schooling life, um, especially towards the end as well. I wasn't as interested in school as sport became more important to me. So it's probably why I ignore certain aspects of my education. <laughs> So I was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness as well, which meant at school, which is an interesting thing, that 
I was taken out of anything that involved Christmas, Easter, Halloween, all of that. I was removed from those classes. I was, I would be taken out of school a few days before everybody else for Christmas and things like that. So I wasn't in and around it. I never went to a single birthday party as a kid. So I, I think that's probably an important part that maybe created some of the, it was just lack of understanding from some of the children, if you like, probably teachers, teachers as well. I didn't go to people's birthday parties and things like that, but that's just because I'm Pakistani and I wasn't allowed. So everyone used to go partying and I just couldn't go. Was this like the latter part of your secondary school? Yeah, this was like year 10, year 11. I just wasn't really allowed out of the house very much. And everyone else was growing up and going out to, yeah, parties. So this this isn't interesting how that's sort sweet. So I I was going fully into a rebellious phase at at that point. So I'd be pretending that I was staying at my mate's house and actually just staying out all night do all that sort of stuff. I mean, like I feel completely the opposite way. No, I wasn't allowed to, I couldn't even say I'm staying at a mate's house because I wasn't allowed to stay at a mate's house. I was literally just, you go to school, you come home, you do your homework, you do some extra work, you read a book and then you repeat the next day. That's difficult. I mean, so then from your point of view, do you feel like you missed out on those years to enjoy yourself maybe to a certain degree? Um, um I think, yeah, I mean, I wasn't even, I wasn't allowed to go to uh, overnight residential school trips. So that's one thing I definitely look back um, on. And I think, oh, I wish, I wish I had gone to, I don't know, Belgium in year nine and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It seemed like so much fun. But I kind of, yeah, I think my rebellious phase was then a bit later during my A-levels. That's when I started bunking off lessons and exploring London, which I hadn't done before. Isn't it It's amazing. Look, as, as children, obviously, you have to find your own way, I guess, a little bit. But then when, they, when it is suppressed, there's, there's then, there's just, as a, as a breaking point, I think probably everybody, everybody gets to the point where it's like, right, I now have to do something for myself. So, wait, so you're, talk me through it. We're in secondary school now. Obviously, like, people start to realise that you're good at sports. And the way, I don't know, the way I saw it as a teacher is that for boys in particular, if you're good at sports it's a lot easier for you to make friends. Like you never want to be that kid in PE that no one picks, but you start to make friends. You're good at sports. Was there a teacher in particular who spotted your talent? Good question. Yeah. When I went to middle school, things did start to change for me. I had an older brother as well who was really sportingly gifted and that helped. So there was a, there was a head teacher called Jim Hudson, quite a, a renowned head teacher actually at the time. I think the government in the end brought him on to sort of head up some of their education-based things because he just did a very good job and sport was quite important to him. And at that point, you had, you had these situations where being involved with sport became more popular. I was enjoying playing sports as well. And there was a PE teacher there called Mr. Lemon that sort of ran everything as well. So I was then playing rugby, playing football, doing athletics. Um, and that started to become something that was a, a bit more important to me. So I probably found my identity as somebody that enjoyed sport and played sport from my middle school. So those guys were probably important for, for, from that point of view. But I was always quite lucky as well that I had family support as well. I know not everybody has that. But for me, I was being supported quite a lot. So my parents would take me different clubs and, and, and different events and whatever else as I started to progress within the world of sport. Yeah, because I had, even as you say that, I think about some of my students who they were extremely talented at football, for example, but then they wouldn't have people to take them to trainings. And, you know, sometimes we'd have teachers who would offer to drive them and take them, but 
even that's not sustainable. So the fact that you had people and you had your family who could take you to and from trainings and sessions. And that really can be difficult. You can see how difficult that is. And you'd have parents that would never go watch their, their children go play for whatever reason. And you can definitely see how that, that's very difficult, especially for young children. I, I say I'm very lucky now as Milo, my oldest boy, he's now started playing football, loves playing football. And you can see the joy he gets out of it when he says scores a goal and looks over and everybody's cheering for it. And, and that's nice to be around that and witness it. What kind of facilities did you have at your school? Very varied. Predominantly a field. I, I think it was, especially in my middle school, as I say, which sparked the imagination. You'd, you'd have some lines drawn on a field to run on. You'd have pitches that were sort of, sort of between rugby and football, depending on um, what was going on. So I just guess, I guess wide open spaces. I think that was probably the big thing. When I went to secondary school, part of the school was actually connected to a leisure centre as well. So there was an indoor hall which meant that you could play things like badminton in, if you like, a bit of basketball, actually, funnily enough, where we were. And then they had some outdoor courts as well. So they had some hard hockey courts, but then a big field again. But bizarrely, actually, at my secondary school, there was a small amount of track and a, a long jump pit as well. And that, for me, it was really interesting because in the first year, I could jump into it. But by the second year, as things started to get better for me, the pit wasn't long enough. <laughs> That's not a brag. That was just, it was a very small long jump pit. So it meant that I couldn't use it, but there were one of these facilities there. Uh, and I think again, as I say, that was the, the, the beauty of being in a, in a new town, if you like. These things have been thought about in, in the seventies as, as everything started to, to explode in the area. And that meant that the facilities were definitely better than what you see in, in, in other places. So when you obviously knew you were good at sport and you, you say, you know, it, gave you something to sort of dream about but did you even in your wildest dream did you think it was possible at that point to achieve what you went on to achieve I think having self-confidence and self-belief in your ability is hugely important and and sometimes that can obviously be misplaced I think some people may have a lot of self-belief but actually not either the ability or the mindset in order to actually take it forward the professional sport and, and building towards it is very difficult it's hard on your body it's hard on your social life. It's, it's very difficult on a lot of things. And at that point, I, I remember like a really vivid memory of mine. In my secondary school, I'd have been in year 11 and I sat in what was our ICT area. So it was where all the computers were. And this is still the early 2000s, I guess. And they're just like these big old computers, not like people on their own laptops nowadays. And two guys in the year below me who, who both played rugby. One actually went on to do quite well and he, he played to a very good level of rugby, actually. I remember him asking them saying, do you think you'll go to the Olympics? And I could see it was a loaded question. I said, yeah, that, that, that's what I want to do. And they laughed at me, both at, just absolutely fell about laughing. And, and that's often the, the, the situation that you're up against people, either because of their own lack of confidence themselves or just wanting to put people down. And even then, I mean, I, I, nobody ever expected me to, to succeed at all. It was, it was a lot of my own self-belief. And then of course there's a level of luck that, that falls into that, but through that schooling period, there was an innate belief that I would achieve, but probably nobody else had that belief in me, to be totally honest. Where do you think that belief comes from? Like you're a teenager sort of in school, not from a particularly kind of, like you say, well-off background, you've got a talent, you're working hard, you're working really hard, but that belief to say, I'm going to go to the Olympics, I'm going to, where does that come from? I think you often find with a lot of people that come from maybe hard working class families where 
you see people having to absolutely slog their guts out constantly to, to get by. I think what you always want and you hope is you strive for more. So you hope that your fortunes can be different. And I saw sport as I guess, from my point of view, uh, a, a bit of a, a, a way out. And I think probably some of the levels of adversity and, and my upbringing, everything else, all of that came together and sport became a bit of an escape for me. It became something that I, I was desperate to do work very well at. And at times. I very much abused my ability. I, I didn't do everything I could have done. I think that's also important as a child. You need to experience the wider world a little bit more. I probably experienced it and, and dabbled more than others or more than I should have, but it all came all right in the end. But I, I think that there is this, this desire to, to just do better for yourself. I, I mean, a big thing for me when, when I play, say, junior football, funny enough, the area that I live in now, I used to come out to here and play a football team here. And I used to think it was just all the posh boys and everything else. And, and they would be turning up in their nice cars. They live in their lovely houses in, in the countryside. And I so desperately wanted that. I, I, I wanted, because you, and look, kids are brute, right? I mean, you've been around them. You must have heard some horrendous things at times. And the things that are said, especially if, if well, in the 90s in particular, I guess the early 2000s, if you're from Bletchley, like the things that were said to you that were really derogatory. I mean, it was really, you were massively put down just from, where you were born because kids are brutal, right? So you have this, this fire in your belly constant. And I think that I say the fact that I'm ginger, or you, you, you're quite a fiery individual as well anyway. And that for me, thankfully I had the ability as well. Of course, I was able to channel that into sport to do well, but touching on before that, that was purely inside me. I believed it would happen no matter what. I think a lot of others would have said absolutely no hope. When you imagine what your life would look like after you'd achieved your Olympic dreams, etc. The life you're living now, is that what you had kind of hoped and prayed for? Oh God, yeah. I mean, like, I have to, I have to look at where I come from and um, um, where I am now, if you like, it, it's very, the, the, the life I can give my children is very, very different to, to the one I have. And I, I, I think it's very important to emphasize I didn't have a bad childhood as such. I had a very different childhood. It was just harder. It was far more difficult. Now there's, or pressure now. Your every move, I guess, now, as we, we both would have faced at times via social media, et cetera, is scrutinized and, and people will have an opinion of you based upon nothing at all. So that's difficult. But actually, I've managed to already achieve things in my life that I always dreamt of doing. And I think when you have a sporting mindset, and maybe other people, I, I don't know, I can only talk for myself because of my background. As much as you achieve, you always want to achieve more. It was the same during my career. I became an Olympic champion. And it was not about sitting down and going, okay, well, I've achieved what I wanted to ask me done. It was like, okay, now I need to become European champion, Commonwealth champion, world champion. So all of these things, you're always striving for more. And that's also very, very important. And that, that probably hard work mentality, I think, definitely came from, from my parents and growing up in that period, watching them work very, very hard to support children and all that sort of thing. It's always about striving for more, I think. And that's, that's, that's a good thing because I'm, I'm 34, I'm a, 35 in exactly a month's time. It's one of those things that there's time, right? There's time to achieving and doing other things. So yes, I'm very happy with, with the way things are. I and mean, as I say, obviously the crowning jewel, um, jewel in my, uh, in my arsenal, if you like, is, is being your friend now. So there we are. <laughs> okay. So if I move away from sports for a minute. What were you good at? What did you enjoy at school out of your other stuff? Um, probably tell by the way I speak in my vocabulary. I'm not the brightest human in the world. I do my best to. 
That's actually, do you know what? That's actually not true at all. I know you're sort of half saying it as a joke, but you are very articulate. That's another skill that I developed is managing to blag it. So my earliest memories, funnily enough, of being in my primary school was seeing in this small library, I always remember this corridor and you had these sort of old fashioned sort of library stands, if you like, which are relatively high with all these different books in them. And I mean, probably if I went there now, it'd be tiny, but then it seemed like quite a big place. But what I was obsessed with was pulling out the history books, particularly about medieval history. And at that point, my reading was very minimal, but by what sort of looking at the pictures and everything else, I still have vivid memories of it, really, really strong memories of being fascinated by understanding how people lived and what it was like in days gone by. And, and, and that's something that I maintained throughout everything. History was something that I was fascinated with, absolutely loved studying. And I would probably say was my favorite subject, even more so than PE. So if PE wasn't in the world, it's not the end of the world because I loved history. And it was something that, as I say, no matter what period of history you're talking about, I could get enthusiastic about it. English isn't something that I was particularly gifted at in any way, shape or form. And most people thought I would fail that hugely. And my English teacher for the last two years, so year 10 into 11 of my GCSEs, I uh, was a man who sadly passed away now called Mr. Sykes and he was deputy head of the school. So I went to a relatively big secondary school and he was, he was just a great big man, with a big beard and his booming voice. And he, he sort of commanded authority in the room, but also he was really good fun. He was just like a good chap. And because of that, I think he most certainly brought my, my English levels up. So at least I passed them. So English literary and English language. I managed to get two C's in GCSEs and I was so happy with that because everybody expected me to fail them. No, a hundred percent is good. You passed. That's really good. So I was, I was over the moon with that. So that that's the influence of a very good teacher I find. And isn't it amazing that even when you think back, you remember the booming voice, you remember all these years later, you still remember like those details of that teacher who helped you passing completely and and that's always a really interesting thing as well is that when, when you try and think of certain teachers names i always think about how my students will remember me and if my students will remember me because obviously i still think back to my teaching so fondly and i think of my students and there are certain students who really kind of who stick with you and I always think, oh, I wonder if they're going to be sort of my age one day and they'll be looking back and they'll, they'll be telling their children, like, oh, I had a really good teacher. Well, that's the hope. And I guess that's the one thing when you do become a teacher as well is that, and it's, it's what you sort of say in the start of your book is where you wanted to change the world. And I find that fascinating as well because it, it is, there, is, there must be a massive part of that, knowing that when you step into a classroom, there's an opportunity to give knowledge to to. to young adults maybe or, or young children that can genuinely change them and and engage them and as i say for teachers that can really engage their students i think they're always remembered so i'm sure you were able to so i'm very i'm, I'm very sure they'll all remember you from this were you ever rude to any of your teachers massively yes yes really you know, well, do you know what there's 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 bits of so certain teachers you don't get on with and and that then i feel like well, the way I used to look at it anyway, that that's like, um, yeah, the, it's all to play for at that point. You just absolutely go for it. No, I, I became, if you look at, I say, I was like the, the, the sort of bullied kid when I was in primary school, then I became like sort of the middle kid. And then I was always a middle kid, but I, then I got into secondary school. And then as my popularity spiked a bit, 
I also was quite silly. I used to love making people laugh, right? So if I could make somebody laugh in a classroom, that was like my, my day was, was, was set. And <laughs> if I enjoyed the lesson a lot, then it was great because I would just crack on and, and I'd make the odd silly remark or whatever. It was fine. For the lessons that I wasn't as, as engaged with or the teachers that I didn't get on with, I at times genuinely made it my life's mission to, to be a bit of an ass, if I'm honest. I, I was just an idiot. I was complete. I remember spending one languages lesson with my friend Adam at the time, with my head on my hands, shouting Liza Minnelli for an entire hour. Like, what was I doing? I think it, it sprung from a, a South Park episode or something like that. There's nothing disruptive. And what did your teacher do? Your poor teacher. Well, yeah, I mean, she was pulling out. We had a major issue with her back then anyway. The, the, the problem we faced at times is that she was... You get labelled very quickly, and of course, some of it's very much self-inflicted. But there was a situation where she was very pro-girl students, didn't really like teaching boys. So if there was ever a situation, for example, we had basically a, a room full of relatively naughty children, right? So there was no discrimination. Everybody in that room was a bit naughty, right? So you had a situation with her, though, that if a girl had done something wrong, automatically it became a boy's fault, right? And, and again, this was, this was just the way she was known for being like, I don't think she teaches anymore. She was relatively old then as well. So at that point, you walk into a roof and every single time you go in there, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit feisty anyway. So at that point, it's just take the ball by the horns and just crack on really, which is terrible. I mean, I was what, I don't know, 13, 14 or something. And just being a little. A little idiot. But I, interestingly as well, that was the start probably for me of a period of being relatively off the rails a little bit anyway with all lots of aspects of my life. I was rebelling against a lot of things at that point. Do you remember a time when you got in really bad trouble at school? There was times when I'd go into class drunk. Like that, there, was, there was periods where that happened, like when I was really rebelling. So probably... 10 into a year, 10 into 11, um, I would we'd drink on the field a little bit. And I mean, not all the time. I mean, this, this sounds like it's rare. I mean, rarely, rarely when that would happen where I, I just remember probably on three occasions quite vividly where older students had brought in alcohol. I remember going into, what would it, be? it would have probably been one of my history lessons because we did humanities history. I took history early, um, but walking into the lesson and we had like a, uh, or do they would do like a bit of debating about something. And I remember I was getting really loud and not aggy at all, but quite loud and he like brash whatever else. And the teacher going, so, what's wrong with something wrong with you? And then instantly me thinking, oh God, if they realize that I'm half cut, like this is, this could really be bad for me. So piping down a little bit, but that, that, I mean, things like that happened, but they happened. I managed to get away with them. I used to have lots of students who used to turn up to lessons high after lunchtime. There you I go. Yeah. See it. You could just you could just see it immediately. And there was probably. very little you could sort of do about it. Yeah, it's probably moved on to that now, I imagine. From I mean although yeah, I mean drugs were still we had the odd drug bust at our school and things like that as well. That they that, that those things did take place as well. But I think well, I felt like I had a relatively strong moral compass in that way. Drugs weren't really a thing for me. And I probably feared more than anything else the absolute belting that I would have got from my parents if, um, if it, that ever would have happened. So what would you say overall was the best thing about school for you? 
That's an interesting one, actually. When you look back at school, what was the best thing about school? Yeah, but the best thing for me probably isn't the right thing. Because as I say, I enjoyed being a, a joker. That was something that I took great pride in, but it didn't help anybody else. It has to be really, if we're looking at it from a, a progression and how that helped me as, a, as an individual, my sporting successes probably helped forge what I went on to do because I loved winning. And winning became the be all and end all. And that was forged within school. Even though the, the issue I do have with, with schools nowadays, and I do go in, I speak to schools obviously before COVID, um, and you see now there's a real moving away from competitive sport in particular. I, I, I would go into schools, and even I experienced it at times, you would have a massive success within sport. You'd be a little footnote at the end of a, an assembly, whereas somebody that had just done very well in an English assignment or something like that was really brought up and, and really championed. The reasoning behind it was always, we don't want to make other children feel inferior physically. And I see that as a real issue because fundamentally, not everybody is going to be hugely intelligent and there will be other people that are way more intelligent than others. I thrived off of being good at sport and it was genuinely a reason for me to be at school at times. Hmm. I think that's the case with so many, like even creative subjects and stuff now though, isn't it? That because of budget cuts and stuff, we're cutting out sort of things like photography and food tech and all these subjects that students who aren't particularly academic and not every student is going to be good at English and maths, they don't have an opportunity to find what they are passionate about and good at and something that they could genuinely be amazing at. What's the biggest lesson that you learned from your time at school? Blag it till you make it, I think is a, a, a big thing that I, I look, I, I'll be honest, as I say, in my latter years of school, school became so important to me that the academic side of it, unless it was history and things like that, the rest of it was a bit of a, I, I just, I, I didn't care as much. And it's not the right approach. I completely and utterly appreciate what I, I became good at, I would say is, is blagging it massively. And that for me, as I say, I, I don't endorse that at all, but it was just a skill that I seemed to develop from having such a, a, a single mindset to head towards sport that the other things I knew were important and I had to get around. And I know that's, that's probably not what people want to hear. And I'd realize as well that I'm very much a one in a million, one in 10 million or whatever, whatever it is to then go on and, and, and do what I've done with my life within sport. But it's helped me, but like, genuinely it's helped me. Look, when you're in the middle of a stadium and there's 80,000 people screaming your name and there's always a level of doubt, it could be an injury, there could be an issue, something could happen, to have those sorts of skills to rely on and, and have that innate self-belief, it genuinely helps. Do you know what's really interesting in what you say is there were so many boys I taught. I mean, the majority of boys who I taught wanted to be footballers and some of them were amazingly talented and they would like play for QPR or Spurs or whatnot. And they didn't see the point in school in working hard in English or maths or science because they knew what they wanted to do and they wanted to be footballers and they were well on their way to, you know, in their eyes, in becoming a Premier League footballer. How do you convince that child to, to, to give a shit about analysing Shakespeare or doing Pythagoras? There has to be a level of realising, I think... The, the difficulty you, you face as well is often that's not just coming from the child, right? So you, you, they'll have a family structure potentially around them. 
maybe single pair, maybe two pairs if they're fortunate enough, of course, or extended, whatever it might be, whatever that might look like, that are equally banking on them doing well, right? You especially see that in, in working class environments. So there's an awful lot of pressure on some of the, the young, sportingly gifted children because they can see what's going on. Having a genuine understanding of how many people first will make it. And that's not to say, listen, only one in a million kids go on to play in the premiership, so there's no hope. That's not the approach. By telling people they can't do it because there's a, a small number that do is the wrong approach. But actually engaging them in other things that can work alongside it. Now, this is where I think things like apprenticeships and other things could be so hugely important to, to young people coming through, especially who seem to be very interested in sport or can't find the thing that works for them. So I guess within the schooling side of things, it's, it's about trying to find what they genuinely enjoy because there will always be other things. Let's say for me, it was history. It was, it was cooking, whatever else, and trying to funnel as much of their attention span as they have, I guess, into it. I say the problem you face at times, like for me, I had, I had to go through 15 GCSEs, then five AES levels to then go through to three A levels, right? It was too much for somebody like myself because I wasn't interested in half of what was going on there. So I'd switch off, which would cause me other problems. There has to be a level of understanding that people develop in different ways, enjoy different things, and then push for that to be what they want to do. Because if you try and ram things down young people's throats, especially very single-minded, very one-track-minded individuals who have this belief that they're going to make it, you're going to lose them even more. But I think there has to be things looked at to how do we really embrace and engage the kids that first of all may not be as academic as others, that may have other interests outside of it. What can, we, what can be done internally or can they be given more of as the things that they enjoy? It has to be a process of figuring out what kids engage in, what they engage in more and how to actually push that, I think. Well, thank you very much, Greg Rutherford, for being on my podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Hopefully it was semi-interesting at times. It was definitely beyond semi. Do you know what? I mean, yeah, it's an inspiring story, isn't it, Greg? Well, I appreciate that. As you, you describe yourself as a skinny little ginger kid who wasn't very well off and went to that local state school with the 35 kids in the class and then discovered that he had a talent and then luckily had a couple of good teachers and some good family members who, along with a lot of hard work and self-belief, went on and did something pretty spectacular. It's quite a story. Thank you very much, Greg Rutherford. And thank you so much for listening to my Hidden Lessons podcast this week. Uh, you can follow Greg at Greg J. Rutherford on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also find me on Instagram if you want to at Queen Marie. My new book, also called Hidden Lessons, is out now. It's all about my time as a teacher, the incredible people I met and the unforgettable life lessons I learned along the way. 